I believe over these next few weeks, God wants to speak to you as an individual. And the whole series of messages that I uh, felt laid in my heart is how God does specific things at a specific place, Mount Horeb. And I said to the Lord, Lord, this is a really strange concept. I'm a, usually a little bit more strategic than this. But actually, I just felt like the Lord said to me, I want people to meet me. I just want people to meet me. And uh, there's an invitation out to you today. You can meet God. You can meet Him. He can talk to you. He can touch you. I know that it's a longer process than just a, a kind of zap moment at an altar or anything. I, I know that there's longer processes than that but really there is a deeper truth and there is a truth about just one touch from the king changes everything there is a sense in which our lives become just self-help and ordinary without the touch of God without the meeting with God so over the last week and the next few weeks my only thing is not to be strategic about the church but to say, hey, can you meet God as a person? I want to serve you, almost shepherd you, so that your heart gets a little bit closer to God. That's my only goal. And time will come for other strategic things, but hey, this is where we are right now. I wonder if heaven exists. In a mother's womb, there were two babies. And one asked the other, do you believe in life after delivery? And the other replied, why, of course, there has to be something after delivery. Maybe we're here to prepare ourselves for what will be afterwards. Why don't you take your seat, by the way? Although it might have been more of a dramatic illustration if you're all standing. <laughs> Although, could have gone wrong. The other replied, why of course there must be something after delivery. Maybe we're here to prepare ourselves for what will be after. Nonsense, said the first baby. There is no life to, uh, after delivery. What kind of life would that be? The second baby said, I don't know, but there would be more light and, and maybe we would walk with our legs and eat with our mouths and maybe we will have other senses that we can't understand now. The first replied, that's absurd. Walking is impossible and eating, eating with our mouths, impossible. Our umbilical cord supplies all the nutrition and everything we need. How could something else outside of this life be possible? Our umbilical cord is far too short. It wouldn't stretch that far outside anyway. The second baby insisted, well, I think there is something and maybe it's different uh, than it is here, maybe we won't need this physical cord anymore. 
It's quite interesting, isn't it, when you've been used to something for a long time, how much you think you need it. The first reply, nonsense. Even if there is life after delivery, why is no one ever come back from there? <laughs> delivery is, is the end of life, and in the after delivery, there's nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion and taken us to nowhere. Well, I don't know, said the second baby, but certainly we will meet mother and she will take care of us. The first replied, mother, you don't actually believe in mother, do you? That, that's laughable. If mother exists, where is she now? And the second baby said, she's all around us and we are surrounded by her and we are of her and in her and we, we don't live without her and the world we have could not exist without her. The first said, well, <laughs> I don't see her, so it's only logical that she doesn't exist. Which the, to the second responded, sometimes in the silence, when you focus and you really Listen. You begin to perceive her presence. You can hear another heartbeat than ours. And you can hear her loving voice speaking from above. For those of us who have faith today, we'll all agree with this illustration. And we were probably thinking, oh, I wish my non-Christian friend could hear this. But I want to turn it to you as people of faith. I wonder what God is trying to birth in you. I wonder what God is trying to get you to do, to slow down, to focus, and to hear his loving voice. What is it that God is trying to birth in you? If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to read you uh, what becomes a very famous story, and a story actually that's quoted later in the Old Testament and again in the New Testament. But let me first show you where we're talking about. If we have that map, um, this is... Uh, the Exodus journey, and Mount Sinai is at the bottom. Uh, they come over the Red Sea, and, and they're in the wilderness, and we're going to talk about where Mount Sinai is another word for Mount Horeb. And all the messages that I'm going to talk to you about over the next few weeks happened around Horeb. And uh, we are actually going to talk about an incident just next to Hureb, there was a place there called Raphidim, and this is where our story takes place today, or uh, should I say actual event? I don't use the word story in the sense that it's uh, uh, not real. So the actual events took place at Raphidim. It's just in the mountain range of Sinai, and that's where Hureb is. Are you ready? Shall we read 
just these first seven verses of Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place. Now, this is important. As the Lord commanded them, they didn't just randomly wander around. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses. And so you want to pick up on that. No water for us, let's quarrel with somebody else. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Can I just mention there's a little bit of over-speaking here. They weren't dead yet. <laughs> have you ever, you know, have you ever had children and they come in and say, I'm starving, I'm going to die if I don't eat now. <laughs> a little bit like what's going on here. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. I want you to take something that they have seen you use before and understand that it's still working. I will stand there before you by the rock at Hureb, Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of Israel, uh, in, in the sight of elders of Israel. And he called that place Massa and Mirabah because the Israelites quarreled and because they, they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord amongst us or not? Massa and Mirabah means bitter and quarreling. There is a sense where, I don't know about you, but I would love to have had the leading that the Israelites had whilst moving about the wilderness. Uh, in the morning, as I open my front door, I wish there was a big cloud that, that and it began to move down the street to my office to say, oh yes, it's right to go to work today. You know, their leading wasn't just uh, or do we feel this? They actually had a cloud, as it, as it says in, in Exodus 13. It says, by day the Lord went ahead of them with a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And in the night, uh, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could not travel uh, by day. So they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, left its place in front of the people. They had a personal physical guide to let them know where they should be. I wish I had that. This is like heavenly sat-nav like no other. And uh, what happened is, is in verse 1 it says, they were traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Now in another place in Numbers it gives you more detail. It says if the cloud stayed for a year, 
then they would camp for a year. And if the cloud, it stayed and the fire stayed for a night and then moved on the next day, could you imagine that? They unpack everything, you know, and everything's there. And then, oh, the cloud's moving again. We've got to pack everything up again. We love it when it's a year because we can settle down, we can get used to the place. Their leading was both definite and specific. It wasn't this random wandering around in the desert. It was precise. Here's the point. So it stands to reason that God wanted them in this exact place. Get it, church? They didn't just happen to come on Raphidim and then think to themselves, oh, we chose a bad place, there's no water here. They were led there, placed there, stopped there. Rafidim uh, as a place means bed. It suppose means resting place or support. So this place did not live up to the expectations that they were led to believe. Oh, we're at Rafidim, the bed, the resting place. It's got no water, and we're going to be attacked by the Amalekites. Great place, God. What is God up to? Because he didn't, they didn't just happen there, he led them there. Isn't it strange when, in our lives, when we get to a difficult place, and you might be in Rafidim today, a place that you thought might have been a lot better, but it's not what you expected. You might be in a relationship with a person that you thought they were one thing and it's not what you expected. What's God up to? What is God saying through that? With the Israelites, it may be slightly different with you, particularly in relationship with people, maybe you need to just ditch a few people. But with the Israelites, we need to ask ourselves, God, what, what are you trying to produce in them? Surely by bringing them to this dry place, you're trying to put something in their lives that they're going to need later on. How many of you know that, that God does that often? He puts things in your life now that you're going to need in the future. And he's training you now. He's teaching you now. And, you don't, and you know, sometimes we don't like today's training, but he's saying, I need you to be able to walk in your large future. Unless you go through this now, that large future that I have for you will not come about. I'm trying to put some things in you, Israel, so you can walk in the promised land. James puts it this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Testing always produces something. God doesn't just put you through a test just so that he's, you know, big God in the sky and you're his little person so he can just put you through something. He's trying to produce something in you. He's trying to bring something through you. It produces perseverance. And then the Bible says, uh, James says in James 1.4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. That's what God's trying to do. He's brought you to your refidium. He's brought you to this place that isn't 
what it's supposed to be or cracked up to be. He's trying to birth something in you so that you have everything you need. Let's just have a look at some of the things he's trying to birth in the children of Israel as they go through this episode. Firstly, number one, he was trying to birth in them a faith that they could walk in despite changing circumstances. Uh, What he did was, he said, Moses, get your staff. Get the staff that you used to hit the Nile and it turned to blood. Get the staff that you hit the ground with and flies and locusts came out. Get the staff that you stretched out over the Red Sea. Show them that in this place where there is no water, where they're about to be attacked, that that faith that they had still works. I'm just wondering whether or not when you get in a place where it's difficult that everything goes out the window. Now, I've never understood the phrase, throw the baby out with the bathwater, because that seems really cruel to me. But sometimes it's almost like we have to start from zero again and again when we have trials. And actually what God is saying is that, look, when you get in a trial, I want to show you that I'm still the same God. I'm still the same God where you walked through the Red Sea. I'm still the same God that turned the Nile to to blood. I'm still the same God. So pick up the same staff, strike the rock, and water will come out. God often does this. When Joshua... Uh, crossed uh, the uh, Jordan River. He said they walked on dry land. And it was the same phrase as when they walked on dry land in the Red Sea. See, what often, what God often does is the same, look, I've given you enough. Don't lose it. Don't forget it. Go back to what you do and what I've done. Now, I'm going to develop this thought, but first and foremost, let us start having a faith that we say, yeah, no, I know, I I use it. I I read my Bible, I I do, I, I put my promises into action, it's there, it's solid. I'm not going to keep starting again. And what God is trying to do is to say, look, I'm trying to produce a faith in you that you can walk in whatever the circumstances. Amen, church? No matter what is happening and in your life right now, God wants to show you, no, I've still got the power. It's still okay. And I still am the answer. Even though this has no water, water is is a very small thing to God. He can do the water, that's fine. But he's trying to produce in them something where they say, oh no, this still works. Secondly, and this is probably most importantly, this episode became almost the episode in which later generations of Israel taught each other about hard-heartedness. And what he was trying to birth in them was a soft heart. 
A heart that can hear his voice even then, even when they think things aren't going their way. In fact, this incident, it becomes so famous that it's quoted in the Psalms. If you've got a Bible, Psalm 95, verses 7 says this, Today, if you would hear my voice, do not harden your hearts like you did at Mirabah, this is this place, as in the wilderness at Massey, uh, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they are a people whose hearts have gone astray. They have not known my ways, so I have declared with an oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Now, here's the point. God is trying to say to them, let me get your heart soft when things aren't going your way. Let me get you to hear my voice. So that in this difficult situation, in this place of rest, that does not give rest, even though it promises rest, I want you to be able to hear my voice. And I'm wondering today whether we can be the sort of people and the sort of church where we'll begin to decide, can we listen to God's voice no matter what the circumstances? You see, it's here, right at this point, God begins to decide, I don't know whether I can take these people into the promised land. Now we know that actually he kind of crystallizes that decision later on when the spies come back from the land and they don't receive a a good report and they don't believe the faith report of uh, Joshua and Caleb, that, that actually that's the moment which seals it and he says, you're not going in. But it's actually here in Rephidim where God begins to say their hearts are getting hard. See, it's even quoted in the Hebrews. In chapter 3, verse 7 of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, again, but this is the New Testament writer, actually makes it more personal. He says, so the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did during the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness. It's the same incident, but the issue is this. Israel, soften your heart, even when things don't go your way. God is trying to produce in them a larger and softer heart, and that's what he's trying to produce in you as you go through your testing. The type of heart that says, God, I know I'm going through this, but I hear your voice. I hear what you're saying. How did they have a hard heart? What what was it that, that began to callous their heart? Let me, can I just flip to teaching again? If you look on the screen, the the first thing that they did is they deflected the real issue to someone else. That they said, "We, we cannot accept that this place is of God, so let's blame Moses. 
Let's grumble at Moses. Have you ever met people where it's their issue, but they blame you? Oh, <laughs> should I have not said that? <laughs> Nobody look around right now. <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes have you ever, you know, had a difficult time and the next person you meet, you're not quite as Christian too? <laughs> Did I say that tactfully enough? It's called deflection. It's, it's this habit of saying, everything I do must be justified because I can never be wrong. Everything I do will never, ever have an apology because I always, always have to justify everything I do. It's spiritual deflection. It's, it's we've got no water. Moses, it's your fault. It's not seeing the issue and pushing it onto someone else. This will harden your heart, my friends. Because God wants you always to have a soft heart. In fact, the, you, know, you know, as a man, we often talk about manning up and all of this. And, you know, we know that, we know that colds are much worse for men. We know that. Ladies, please, you, you need to know this. Man flu would kill you. We know this. But what God is trying to do in a man is not them to have this SAS heart, this heart of stone. What God is trying to do in a man is to put him in a heart of flesh where he can hear the voice of God where he can be soft-hearted. That's God's will for you today. The other thing that they did was they measured God's love by their circumstances. They said, is the Lord amongst us? It's a dry place. We're going to be attacked in a few minutes by the Amalekites. Is the Lord amongst us? They were measuring their circumstances, measuring God's love by their circumstances. And I know that you might have some tough things at the moment. I understand that. But God's love is always the same. The cross always stands on the hill of Calvary. And Jesus always is turned towards you, no matter your circumstances. God is still the God of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters who are suffering right now. He loves them, he loves them, he loves them. You cannot measure God's love by circumstances. When you begin to do that, your heart becomes hard. And the Bible specifically says, do not harden your heart as you did then. Do not allow these things to measure God's love. Because when you do that, your heart goes hard. So come on, church. How many of you have been secretly, perhaps quietly, saying, God, surely you love me if you did this? Actually, you've got to get rid of those things. You've got to lay those before God because it's, it's hardening your heart. And the third thing that they did is they said, you've brought us out of Egypt. As if that was a bad thing. It was a lack of gratitude for the, for the progress that they'd already made. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? 
And that when you're not grateful for where you've come to, even though, uh, hey, I always use the phrase, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I was. I was so lost. I, am, I may not be where I need to be, but I thank God that I'm not where I was. And they're, they're complaining, you brought us out of Egypt. Oh, so you want me to take you back in, in slavery where you're going to be whipped and you're making bricks without straw and that's supposed to be a good thing for you? It's a lack of gratitude. Now, this is the thing. The attitude of gratitude will always, always soften your heart. Ungratefulness will always harden your heart. I don't know whether ungratefulness is a word, actually. Uh, Is it ingratitude is the right word? A lack of gratitude will always harden your heart. I believe we need to be thankful every day. How many of you do you think that? Amen. Amen? I just really think we should be thankful every day. We need to believe that God is moving us on bit by bit, and we need to thank him for that. Sometimes we look at our very Western lives and we're so ungrateful, even for the small things that God does for us. How many of you believe that we need to be thankful? So come on, soften your heart. Soften your heart. That's what God is trying to do. That's what I believe some of these messages are about. It's about you meeting God at the place that's important for you. So God has taken them to this place and he showed them that the faith that they have is enough and the things that Moses has done in the past, it works now and there's miraculous water coming out of a rock. He's trying to soften their heart because he's trying to get them into the promised land. They're going to need a soft heart to demonstrate God's kingdom on earth. It's such an important position. But the third thing he's trying to do is he's trying to produce in them that they will need to be dependent on him and on him and on each other for prayer. The Amalekites attack them, if you read a little bit further in the the chapter, and he's trying to produce in them how prayer works. Joshua, you could do a whole message on this, so I'm just going to do it this way. Joshua is fighting the battle. He looks behind him and he sees Moses is praying for him. At the side of him is Aaron and Hur. And they are lifting up the arms of Moses. That's what's happening. And Joshua says, oh, I know who's praying for me. Moses is sitting there and he's saying, I'm praying for Joshua, but I've got Aaron and Hur on the side of me. Hur is standing there and going, I'm praying for Moses and Aaron's praying for Moses, but we're all three together. I wonder if I looked at your life or you look at your own life, who's praying for you? Do you got a name? Have you got somebody who is covering your back, covering your side around you? Have you got a prayer triplet around you? It may be people in your cell group, which is amazing. But who is praying for you? Who's praying for me and Kathy? We need it. No, seriously. We can't do this without your prayers. 
You need to call our names regularly. Now, I know you've got other people you need to be praying for, and we know more important than them. But one of the things that God is trying to teach you when you get in your place that turns out not to be a place of rest is you need prayer back up. You need real people who you know their name and they're praying for you. So this week, here's the kind of assignment. Get some prayer back up. Find a couple of friends and people who you know pray and say, would you be my Aaron and her, please? Would you be my prayer backup? And I know lots of you already have that. But here's the other thing. God often places you in a Rafidim state. In a place that promises rest, but it's actually a hard place. Because God wants to deal with an opposition or an ongoing issue that otherwise would not have been dealt with. Now listen to me. God sometimes puts you in a hard place because he wants to deal with something that you have been putting up with too long. Can you hear an amen? amen? Now listen, verse 14. God says, I've let the Amalekites fight you. And then he says, because I will completely blot out their name under heaven. In other words, 